Okay. We ready to start? We got a lot, a lot of great stuff to talk about this morning. So let's start with some praying. <clears throat> Father, we have uh, some wonderfully delicious things to talk about this morning. Uh, certainly comes with plenty of controversy and differences of opinion. But in all things, Father, we, we glory in you and what you have revealed for us, revealed to us. Um, I pray that you'd give us clarity of thought and of mind, help us to understand your word and to logically, rationally, um, apply it to uh, what, we, uh, what, we, what else we know to be true. And uh, as we think about um, its implication, I pray that you give us wisdom uh, to know where it, where it fits and where it doesn't. Pray that in all things you would give us grace and cause us to be gracious in dealing with a difficult and, and controversial topic as is before us this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are limits to language. Us preachers like acrostics and um, alliterations and rhymes. Did you check? Did you catch the rhyme last week in my in my uh, my sermon? Did you like that or what? That was like so. Th- Marianne had a better idea for for one of one of the points. Okay, but I didn't pass it by her first. But I I I like that kind of thing. And when it comes to the response by the Calvinists to the Arminians' protests, the remonstrance, um, it, it, it comes out in this, in this delightful little um, uh, thing, a, a tulip. Again, this is, this, is, this is not the summation of Calvinism. Uh, this is a response to the, the protest, pro- protesters um, about 100 years after Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses. Uh, this, this was their, their protest to say, wait a minute, we're, we're not so sure that the Bible teaches what you reformers are presenting. And it comes out in this, this, this nice little tidy tulip. Again, this is, a, this is a response to their comments. This isn't the summation of, of Calvinism. And thank you for whoever uh, added the artwork. <laughs> Delightful little tulip here. Now, we, we've talked about these, these first two um, extensively in our study so far. We've talked about the depravity of mankind. We've talked about God's uh, choosing of mankind. Uh, this morning we're going to talk about the third one, uh, the limit of the atonement, uh, irresistible grace for adherence of the saints. We will be dealing with later. For right now, I'm going to erase them because they are 
outside of the purview of our um, discussion. Now, as we've, we've talked about uh, total depravity, I have suggested that there might be a better way to, to, uh, to, to talk about it. And here's the, the limitation of language. We like flowers. We like tulips. Um, but sometimes uh, our language gets in the way of communicating what we want to communicate. Uh, rather than moral depravity, we, we could talk about moral inability or radical corruption when we talk about unconditional election it might be a little more accurate for us to talk about sovereign election God is the one who chooses as the sovereign he makes the call will show compassion on whom I will have compassion, as the scriptures say. Now, in doing so, in, in, we're messing with our tulip, and we're not even going to have a flower anymore. When it comes to limited atonement, we're going to find that, that that too is a not as helpful a descriptor as we might like. And I might suggest something in just a few moments uh, a, a better way to, to, to label this. Um, to, to, to say that the, the, the atonement of Christ is limited is something that both Calvinists and Arminians will applaud with agreement. They will say there is no limit on the value of the atonement. Christ's obedience, his sacrifice, was of such infinite value that if God willed it, the entire human race could be saved. You can't, you can't squeeze any more obedience, any more sacrifice, any more... Um, uh, 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 value out of what Christ did. There is no limit to the value of Christ's death. And everybody agrees with that. Also, they will all agree that the atonement is limited in its design. That is to say, we are not universalists. Calvinists and, and Armenians would say um, not everyone is going to be saved. So, so by its design, the atonement is limited, and everybody's in agreement with that. So what's the issue here? Why is this on the board as if it's different from what the Armenians say? Isn't this a response to the protests of the remonstrants, the, uh, the followers of Jacob Arminius? Well, yeah, yeah. So there is something different about this idea of the atonement. It's got to be limited in some way. And here's where there is a divergence between the Armenian camp and the Calvinist camp. 
Um, we, would, um, uh, we, we would say this. The atonement is, uh, by, by we, I I would, uh, I, I'm putting, putting myself in this, and this is, the, uh, this is the, the perspective of the Calvinist, and I'll just put Cal for the uh, abbreviation here. The Calvinist says that the, the atonement is limited in its extent. The Arminian would say it's limited in its effectiveness. Now, in fairness, the Armenian probably would not use that word. I'm using that word because it begins with an E, and I like alliteration. <clears throat> but again, there are limitations to the benefit of the, uh, the words uh, and the language that we use. Um, uh, but this is, um, uh, this is... This is what, what the, uh, the, the Calvinists, or, or what the Arminians would, would say. Um, it is, the, the, the atonement is limited in its effectiveness or in its powerfulness. Now, again, nobody, nobody says, or, or let, me, let me put it positively. Everyone says, Calvinists and Arminians agree, um, that the atonement of Christ is sufficient for all, but it is efficient only for some. It is sufficient for, for all, but it is efficient for some. Everybody agrees with that. The difference is the extent or the effectiveness of the atonement. Let me explain those. If we say the atonement is limited in its extent, we are saying that Christ's death was never intended to save everyone. It was intended to save a select group, a particular group. When the Armenians say, that the uh, atonement is limited in its effectiveness, they, though they might not use that word, they will say that the, the atonement of Christ makes salvation possible, but in and of itself it doesn't save anyone. Its effectiveness is limited because it doesn't save Actually, it makes salvation possible. That make sense so far. <clears throat> um, let, let me let me read to you what um, Charles Spurgeon, who is uh, a strong Calvinist, let me let me read you what he says about this idea of a limited atonement. It's an extended quote. Quote. We Calvinists are often told that we limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ has not made a satisfaction for all men, or all men would be saved. Now, our reply to this is that on the one hand, on the other hand, our opponents limit it, we do not, 
The Armenians say, Christ died for all men. Ask them what they mean by that. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of all men? They say, no, certainly not. We ask them then the next question. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of any man in particular? And they answer, no. They are obligated to admit this if they are consistent. They say, no, Christ has died that any man may be saved if... Dot, dot, dot. And then they follow with certain conditions of salvation. We looked uh, over the last couple of weeks when we talked about the unconditional nature of of God's election. It it, it doesn't have anything to do with God looking down the corridors of time and seeing those who repent and those who believe. Those are the conditions that the Armenians say must be satisfied for God to choose. And the Calvinist says, on the basis of Scripture, no, that's not quite accurate. It's better to say, uh, biblically to say, uh, that God chooses without any conditions. Back to my quote from Spurgeon. Uh, They say, no, Christ has died that any man may be saved if, and then follow certain conditions of salvation. Now, who is it that limits the death of Christ, writes Spurgeon? Why? You Arminians, you say Christ did not die so as infallibly to secure the salvation of anybody. We beg your pardon. When we say we limit Christ's death, we say, no, my dear sir, it, my dear sir, it is you that limit it. You say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can... Um, Oh, I I think I... Let me start that sentence again. We say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved and cannot be... and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. You are welcome to your atonement. You may keep it. We will re- never renounce ours for the sake of it, unquote. So Spurgeon says it's the uh, Arminian who's really limiting the, the atonement of Christ because it doesn't actually save anybody. It makes it possible for someone to be saved, but it doesn't save. Well, um, the idea that God does indeed secure the salvation of some, it flows not only from Scripture, but logically from these first two points that the um, uh, members of the Council of Dort articulated. If man is dead, spiritually dead, morally unable to respond, if he is indeed radically corrupt to the core, such that he cannot change his own nature, he's dependent upon God, sovereignly choosing, sovereignly working to effect new life. 
this idea of Christ's atonement logically fits in this whole sequence of events. If we are unable to do anything, God has chosen to do so, then in the cross of Christ, he atones, pays for, redeems, secures the salvation of those whom he has unconditionally chosen. See how they, 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 they all fit together like, a, like a, a nice tight puzzle pieces. Nice tight, nice puzzle pieces. Um, Lorraine Bettner, um, another strong Calvinist, wrote this. Uh, this is a summary of the debate. I put this in your notes. For the Calvinists, Christ's atonement is like a narrow bridge which goes all the way across the stream. For the Arminian is like a great wide bridge which, go only, which goes only halfway across. All right, a little tongue-in-cheek here. Um, uh, the, the Arminian would not, uh, would, would not subscribe to, to this kind of a, a, of a word picture, but I, I think it's accurate for, for the... the um, um, for, for our discussion here, what, what, what's at stake? So, so let, me, let me explore a, a couple of things. Let's, let's explore this biblically. That's, that's where we have to start. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and then we'll explore um, this uh, logically uh, for, a, for a moment. Um, let, me, let me begin uh, this discussion of... of of what does the scripture say about this by asking you to respond to, um, to, to my questions. Okay, I'm going I'm to give you four names, and I want you to tell me if these people are, uh, individually, if they are a sheep or a goat with regard to God's salvation. All right? Peter, sheep or goat? Sheep, all right? Um, Judas Iscariot, sheep or goat? Goat. Um, the Apostle Paul, sheep or goat? Sheep. How about um, Herod Antipas? Goat, all right? Turn with me to John chapter 10, please. John chapter 10, verse 11. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his sheep for... (laughs) Okay, my mind was going a little faster than my mouth. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. All right. Look at verse 15. The Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. Not for the goats. No, that's not what Jesus says. 
the Armenian counters. Well, wait, wait, wait. It's, it's not their fault that they're not sheep. They were not sheep because they didn't believe. Is that what Jesus says? Look at verse 26. The Armenian says, they're not sheep because they don't believe. Jesus says, you don't believe because you are not my sheep. Okay. Question. Was it the Father's intention in sending the Son to secure salvation or to make salvation possible? What did the Father intend in sending Christ to earth? To accomplish salvation or to make salvation possible? I put these scripture references in your notes. I'm going to make reference to them and read them. I printed them out here for myself. But, but I, I want you to listen. You can go back and, and study them yourself. But I want you to just get the flavor of a number of passages of Scripture. We're looking at the Father's intent in sending Christ. Matthew 1. He will save his people from their sins. Luke 19. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Galatians 1. The Father gave the Son to rescue us, the recipients of his letter. Romans 5, uh, no, First, First Timothy chapter 1. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What was the Father's intent? To actually save or to make salvation possible? What does the scripture say? Romans chapter 5. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. We were reconciled? Hebrews chapter 9. Through Christ's blood, we obtained eternal redemption. We already looked at John 10. Jesus lays down his life for his sheep. Okay, so why did the Father send the Son? To actually save, redeem, reconcile, or to make it possible? What does the Scripture say? Um, Next question. What did Christ's death accomplish? Isaiah 53, his death will justify the many. Now, many denotes a a, a whole bunch, but not every single one. Ephesians chapter 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Acts chapter 20, Christ purchased the church with his own blood. John 15, Jesus 
laid down his life for his friends. Titus chapter 2, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us. Let me have you turn with me to um, the last one that I listed in your notes, First uh, John chapter 2. In this series that I've titled God's Glorious Salvation, we have uh, looked at uh, a few verses, and specifically this one in First John chapter 2. <clears throat> let, me, let me read... Uh, uh, Chapter 2, verse 2, and then uh, turn over to chapter 4. Uh, 2, verse 2. He himself, speaking of Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now the Armenian will... will um, uh, erect a tent over this one to protect it. And say, see, right there, he propitiated, that is, satisfied the wrath of God for the whole world. Chapter 4, verse 10. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our Sins. Quickly, we might add the the, um, the additional note that's not in chapter four, but it is in chapter two. But not only for those, uh, not only for for us only, but but for those um, of the whole world. Um, well, well, we're we're going to talk about that. The reason why. I, I had you turn there was because I'm going to make reference to that in just a just a few moments. Um, but 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 the point here is that Christ died as a propitiation for our sins. He satisfied the wrath of God for particular individuals. So, uh, did um, um, did Jesus? limit the purpose of his death. On the basis of what we've read in Scripture, yes, no, yes, yes, indeed he did. He died for the church. He died for his own. He died for his friends, he died to redeem us. He will justify the many. Yeah, I, th- I think the scriptures are, are very clear that the Father sent his Son to actually save, not just make it potentially so. And Jesus himself limited the purpose of his um, of his, uh, of his death. Let's explore this uh, uh, logically here for just a, a few moments. John Owen was a Puritan preacher, um, a strong intellectual uh, gentleman that is difficult to understand. 
he wrote a, a work called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. It is kind of the go-to tome uh, as a, a, uh, a defense of this idea of the limited atonement of Christ. Now, in this work, he argues um, for uh, what, what we might call a, a better, a better uh, uh, description of this. We might, we might call this a particular redemption. And by that descriptor, we are, we, are, we are affirming that Christ redeemed, actually redeemed, actually saved, particular individuals. It just come in a generic way to make salvation possible. He actually, by his death, accomplished salvation for some specific individuals. All right. So, um, John Owen uh, argues this. When Jesus was punished, that is, when he, he died a sinner's death, one of three things uh, happened. He died for all the sins of all men. That's one option. He died for all the sins of some men. That's another option. Or third, he says, Jesus died for some of the sins of all men. Let's explore those possibilities. The first one is, Jesus died for all the sins of all men. So, if that's the case, we ask the question, so why are all men not free from punishment? Well, because they don't believe but think about this. Isn't unbelief a sin? Sure. Well, if Jesus died for all the sins of all men, then he died for the sin of unbelief. Now we we have um, uh, we have just become universalists if we affirm all this. And of course the Armenian will say, well, but, but no, 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 no. Um, uh, he, he, uh, he, he, he died for all the sins of all men, the, the uh, Armenian would, would affirm. Um, but um, but uh, if, if they don't believe, then they... They, they cancel out what Christ has done for them. Well, they've just limited Christ's atonement. Um, that, that, uh, that, that's, that's very unsatisfying and not in keeping with Scripture. 
Jesus did not die for all the sins of all men. Now, this, the, middle, the middle option is, is what the, the Bible declares. Jesus died for all the sins of some men. He died for even our unbelief. But in that redemption, he changes our want to her, if you will, and gives us the ability now to respond to him so that we are no longer stuck in that state of unbelief. We willingly, eagerly choose to believe. He's taken out that heart of stone, replaced it with a heart of flesh. Now it's able to respond to, to, uh, to the living Lord. Well, that's the truth of Scripture. The, the third option here is, um, as, as Owen argues, is that Jesus died for some of the sins of all men. But that means that all men have additional sins to answer for, for which Christ did not die. Um, and that leaves us with nobody being saved. That, that's, 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 that's unacceptable on, on everybody's uh, side. Um, if, if, if Arminianism is true, if, that, if their perspective is accurate, um, millions of those for whom Christ died, from their perspective, are destined to hell. Think about that. If the Arminian perspective is accurate, and Christ did indeed die for all, they would say he didn't make salvation um, actual, but possible for all men. But if he died for all men, which they would say, um, and, and, and we find it in, in, um, in, in evangelism, and we're going to talk about that as an application of this topic in just a, just a few minutes. We, we hear it we hear it in the, in the statement, um, Jesus loves you, and Jesus died for you. Is that accurate? Is that something that we should say? Should we go up on stage and, 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 and slap the evangelist in the, in, in, in the face when he, when he utters such words? Is that biblically true? <clears throat> If Arminium is true, then millions of those for whom Christ died are destined for hell. Now, here, here, here's, here's the, the, the logical point that we need to make. Um, it, it would be unjust for God to demand payment for sin from Christ and then to demand payment from an unbelieving sinner sentencing them to hell by demanding payment for the same sin. So someone is having their, their, their sin paid for by Christ and then they have to pay for it again. That's, that's not fair for God to require that a, a sin be paid for twice. Put this in your notes from... 
Charles Spurgeon. He said this, if, if Christ has died for you, you can never be lost. God will not punish twice for one thing. If God punished Christ for your sins, he will not punish you. Payment, God's justice cannot twice demand. First at the bleeding Savior's hand, and then again at mine. How can God be just if he punished Christ, the substitute, and then man himself afterwards? Further, if if God foreknows all things, why would the Father send the Son to die for those he positively knew would be lost? For the Father to do so would be foolish at best, cruel and unjust at worst. Here I have in my hand a volume by Roger Olson, a strong uh, Arminian. He wrote a book, uh, it actually comes in a two-pack, uh, one by Michael Horton and this one by Roger Olson. Michael Horton wrote a book called For Calvinism, and Roger Olson's response against Calvinism. He says in this volume, um, he, he's, he's uh, speaking of, of this argument as it's uh, expounded by John Owen, and then uh, repeated by R.C. Sproul. He, uh, he, 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 um, he says this, One has to wonder whether Sproul has ever heard the obvious answer to this objection, and if he simply is choosing to ignore it. Suffice it for now to simply say that this argument is so easily turned aside that it makes me wonder why anyone takes it seriously. Reading from uh, Olson's book, page 149. Uh, There is still the matter of Owen's and most high Calvinists' argument that the same sin cannot be punished twice. Again, that's simply false. Imagine a person who was fined by a court $1,000 for a misdemeanor and someone else steps in and pays the fine. What if the fined person declines to accept that payment and insists on paying the fine himself or herself. Will the court automatically refund the first $1,000? Probably not. It's the risk the first person takes to paying his friend's fine. In such a case, that same punishment would be paid twice. It is not that God exacts the same punishment twice. It is that the sinner who refused the free offer of salvation but by default subjects himself or herself to the punishment that has already been suffered for him or her. Now, Olson really doesn't offer uh, a counter-explanation but a dubious illustration. He says, not that God exacts the same punishment twice. Well, by um, the Arminian understanding, that perspective, uh, 
Um, Christ has died for all men. The payment has been made. And then he exacts it from the sinner. So Olson's argument is is uh, is, is is flawed. Um, he he is looking to protect the character of God by saying that it's not God's fault. He's not the one that's unjust. It's the sinner who is refusing the payment. However, in their understanding, the payment has already been made. Now, um, the, uh, uh, the verse in 1 John chapter 2 that I made reference to earlier is one of these verses. Um, and there are a number of verses that have to do with all or uh, the world that we've looked at before that are the, 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 the bread and butter of the Arminians' biblical arguments. Um, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, John writes. And when we look at John's audience, he's writing to believers, and largely, as was the case in the first century, um, largely Jewish um, uh, 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 believers, Jews that have now converted to Christianity, the way, as it was called. Um, so so when, when John says he, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, um, we, we would say, well, all right, he, he's largely talking, not exclusively, of course, but largely talking of, to, a, to a, a converted Jewish audience. And when he, uh, when he continues, he says, uh, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world, the world consists of Gentiles. And it's not just for the benefit of Jews, but also for Gentiles that, uh, that, that Jesus died. Now, does the text specify world in this case? No, it doesn't. This is something that we are, we are looking at from, from the larger context. And we have other, other passages of Scripture to pull in at this point, and we have done that here in, this, in the past in this series. Um, and we certainly can go, go back and review some of those things, but um, the point here is that this verse by itself is ill-defined. It's not that John was, was inaccurate. It, he, he simply didn't give us the definition of what the world means here as much as the Armenian wants to define it. In Mark chapter 10, this is um, uh, the New Testament example from, uh, in comparison with the, the um, uh, reference in Isaiah 53 that I mentioned. Um, Jesus' death was was for the many. 
In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus is speaking. He says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for all. No, that's not how it reigns. No, he gave his life a ransom for many. These, these, are, the, these are the particular ones. Okay, in, uh, in, in our time together, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, revisit some of, 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 of these ideas um, uh, next Lord's Day, Lord willing. But, but let me... Let me let me talk a little bit about uh, how this particular doctrine affects things like evangelism. And I mentioned the evangelist who said, Christ died for you. I, I, I don't know how many times I have heard that. Um, and I probably even said it, too, before I took the time to look carefully at what the scriptures teach. Can we legitimately say Christ died for you? When I'm, when I'm speaking to a, a, an unbeliever, can, can I say Christ died for you? I don't know for sure. And actually, to say that is a rather arrogant statement. It's arrogant to presume that I know the mind of God. And I have somehow had uh, privileged access to the Lamb's Book of Life. And I can see this person's name written there. How presumptuous of me. Well, you know, all the, all the Armenians and all the evangelists that might speak that kind of phrase, they don't mean it in a mean-spirited way. Not at all. They, 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 they want to, um, they want to be used of God to draw men to Himself. But I think it's more accurate for us to say things like, "Christ died for sinners." Okay, that that um, I'm, I'm not I'm not putting on you know the the friend that's right here before me. I'm thinking of a of a, a gentleman that I've recently met. Met his name is is Richard. I haven't had yet the opportunity to 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 witness to him, but I, I have him in my mind. I, I can't say authoritatively, dogmatically, Christ died for you, but I can say Christ died for sinners. And as I talk about the person of Christ, as I talk about the work of Christ, I am looking for the Holy Spirit's work in his life. If he has a recognition of sin, a remorse of sin, a repentance from sin, oh, they all begin with the letter R. Preachers like that. Um, that, that's That's what I'm looking for. I could also say, if I, if I choose not to, to, to be really generic there, Jesus died for sinners. I, I could also say, Jesus died with you in mind. Well, if 
Try, try that on. Uh, Jesus died with you in mind. Um, if, if you are, are, are not one who has received that internal call of the Holy Spirit, um, the, um, uh, the, the death of Christ will be of no benefit to you. And in the mind of Christ, you, uh, he, he, has, he, has, he has passed over. He has not shown compassion. It's God's sovereign choice. Uh, but if he has, you will at some point, maybe not right in front of me, not in this conversation possibly, uh, but you will at some point have uh, the light bulb turned on, so to speak, in your, in your mind and in your soul. And you will see the, um, the holiness of God, your sin. You will see that Christ is the one and only mediator between God and man. Putting all of the scriptures we've talked about together, um, the, uh, the 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 all all men, um, uh, the whole world has to refer to um, all without distinction, not all without exception. So we'll put the pause here on um, on, on this 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 message and give give you opportunity to ask questions or um, respond in whatever way you might want to respond. What do you think?